I want to echo what Chris said at the beginning, and of course that is thanks to all of you ladies in our fellowship and our congregation, those of you who biologically are mothers and spiritually mothers and the responsibility that you assume in our congregation to do those things that we talked about in the children's dedication. Of course, Mother's Day is in America the second Sunday in May, and we don't have evening worship this evening as a result so that you can be with your mother and have family time. I don't know what that says about Father's Day for us because we always have evening worship on Father's Day, the third Sunday in June. So we've got Mother's Day and Father's Day. I guess I've just been out of touch all these years. I didn't know there was such a thing called Children's Day. It came to my attention when Gail Shipley took puppets down to Metamoros with scripts in Spanish and salvation bracelets and wordless books that present the story of salvation to distribute to the pastors that work with Abraham Barberi and Metamoros and points south from there in Mexico. One of the reasons was two weeks ago on the 30th of April, they were going to celebrate the Day of the Children. In Mexico, that is always celebrated on the 30th of April, El Dia de los Niños, and I knew nothing about it. Well, just a little bit of history. It began in 1925 after there was a conference in Geneva, Switzerland for the well-being of children, and Mexico began to celebrate the Day of the Children in order to emphasize their importance to culture and society and to promote their well-being. But in fact, this began, uh, as many of these kinds of celebrations did, in America. Back in the middle of the 19th century, in 1857, at the Universalist Church of the Redeemer in Chelsea, Massachusetts, Pastor Charles Leonard introduced the idea of honoring children as well as mothers and fathers. The first country to do so nationwide was Turkey in 1920. And then International Children's Day was proclaimed at that conference in Geneva in 1925. And bit by bit by bit, nations took it on then for a national day of celebration. Interestingly enough, most popularly in communist countries. And it continues to be celebrated in those post-communist societies ever since 1950 on the 1st of June. So coming up here in about three weeks. In 1959... They declared at the UN a uh, World Children's Day. It was after the Declaration of the Rights of the Child. There are over 2 billion children in the world today between the ages of zip and 14. And over 150 million of those are in some kind of child slave labor. The world Children's Day, of course, emphasizes the need to deal with that exploitation and abuse and discrimination and emphasizes well-being and literacy. In America, we don't have a set day for Children's Day. Oh, we've had several set days. There are 150 countries in the world that do so, and they've got a, a national day of celebration. In America, because of different administrations wanting to set their stamp on it for different days, Sometimes it's observed in the second week of October, sometimes the second week of June. 
and sometimes on the 20th of November in, in line with UN Children's Day. I think that's probably the reason I didn't know much about it. We don't have a single national day that's widely recognized. The Day of the Children, we celebrate that today on Mother's Day here at Gambrel Street. And we look at a passage of Scripture from Matthew, the 19th chapter, which is the basis for this, I think, one of the biblical bases. When we look at the 19th chapter of Matthew, where are we? Well, it is near the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He has already been confessed by Peter as the Christ, the Son of God, followed by his prediction that he is going to go to Jerusalem and he will be slain and raised again in three days. And immediately after that, he has challenged his disciples then to do the same thing. If they're going to follow him, to take up their cross daily and surrender their lives to him and follow him daily. The hard call to discipleship, followed by the transfiguration, which occurs just before this passage in Matthew, the 17th chapter. And then he departed Galilee at the beginning of the 19th chapter. He is leaving Galilee, and he heads into the Judean territory across the Jordan, and he will soon then turn and set his face to Jerusalem in the 20th chapter. One thing to understand this passage more fully, I think, is important for us to recall that we introduced at the beginning of this series, and that is the message of the Gospels through Jesus begins and is thoroughly laced with the teachings of the kingdom of God. From the beginning of his ministry in Matthew, the fourth chapter, it said that he went into Galilee and he proclaimed the gospel of God, and that is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Forty times by the time we come up to the 19th chapter of Matthew, Jesus himself has spoken about the kingdom of heaven. Mark, usually it's spoken of as the kingdom of God, but I believe they're one and the same, essentially. In the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, he has talked about the ethic of the kingdom. He gives seven parables in chapter 13 about the sower and the tares and the wheat, the mustard seed, the leaven, the hidden treasure, the costly pearl, and the great draft of fishes that will then be separated on that day of judgment. Peter's confession, one of the high points in Matthew's gospel, Jesus concludes that by saying to his disciples that not just to Peter, but to them have been given the keys of the what? The kingdom of heaven. And then we come to chapter 18. He then summarizes several teachings about the kingdom of heaven during that chapter. Another thing to understand this passage today is Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees. Of course, he has had a rather rough relationship with them. They have plotted with the Herodians to seek his death. And the reasons for their opposition is because he is unconventional, and so are his disciples. They are always breaking the Sabbath. His disciples harvesting grain with their hand as they walk through the field on the Sabbath to eat. Jesus dared to heal in the synagogues on the Sabbath. They don't fast like the Pharisees and the disciples of John. And the Pharisees continue to test Jesus and ask him for a sign as they collude with Herodians to destroy him. He is confronted by them about the purity laws, why his disciples don't clean their hands before they eat. And he says, it isn't what 
enters a man that causes him to be unclean, but what comes out of a man that makes him then unclean. And he's accused by the Pharisees then of all things in their frustration of saying, nobody could perform these kinds of miracles unless they were doing them by the power of Beelzebub himself. He must be possessed by a demon. And it brings us then to chapter 19. And the Pharisees then have yet once again tested Jesus, and they ask him a question about divorce, because there were two schools of thought in Pharisaic rabbi, rabbinic tradition. One of those by the more conservative school of Shammai that said divorce could be granted or issued only on the basis of sexual unfaithfulness in marriage. The more progressive, or if you will, liberal school of thought was Hillel, which said that divorce could be granted for any reason that a husband decided that his wife had offended him. She burned his food or didn't keep his clothes clean. So there were these two different opinions, and it was complicated then by the Pharisees' relationship with the Herodians where they are plotting Jesus' death. You might remember the Herodians were those that followed Herod, Herod Antipas, who interestingly enough has just executed John the Baptist because John opposed his marrying his own stepsister and having an incestuous relationship with her. And so that's one of the backgrounds for the Pharisees' questions. They are putting him on the horns of a dilemma. And Jesus then in this passage in Matthew 19 speaks a bit about the kingdom from this standpoint. What are family relationships in the kingdom to be like? And he dealt with divorce and marriage. He said that divorce should be allowed, as he had said in the Sermon on the Mount, on the basis of just one thing, and that was sexual unfaithfulness. He opposed the idea of a person being able, a man being able to simply put his wife away and divorce her for whatever reason he chose. The only reason was for adultery. And so you see this put him then in a very difficult position with some of the Pharisees because he seemed to be contravening Moses' law. And you know what he said about that. Moses gave this law because you're sinners. Moses gave this law to accommodate your weakness. Moses gave this law as an accommodation to your fallen nature. God's intent for marriage, in fact, is for it to be a permanent, everlasting on this earth, human relationship of one flesh between one man and one woman. So his position was very clear. And then they asked him, well, then is, do we all have to marry? Is that required? And he dealt with the issue of celibacy and said, celibacy is a respectable status. Celibacy is a respectable status. There are some that cannot marry, and there are some that choose not to marry. And in fact, there are some that have chosen this pathway of life as a part of their obedience in the kingdom of heaven. So you see that theme of the kingdom of heaven comes back in there. We don't know whether the Pharisees were still standing there then as we shift gears to this third topic about family relationships in the kingdom, but some then brought their children to Jesus. And so you can see this deals with the family relationships in the kingdom. Probably based on the Jewish custom from the Mishnah, where parents would bring their children to the elders of the synagogue and ask for them to be blessed on the eve of the Day of Atonement, that is Yom Kippur, and ask the elders to do as we have done today, to present them and to bless them and to pray for them. And so then Jesus responded in verses 13 through 15. Matthew 19. 
Then some children were brought to him. It doesn't say who did this. It just says some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. You know, this passage is also the parallel passages found in the other two synoptic gospels. In Mark, the 10th chapter, which gives a, small, a slightly larger account, and Luke, the 18th chapter, which does similarly. Additional information from Mark, it tells us that Jesus also responded emotionally to the disciples. He said, it says that he was indignant at their attitude. Mark and Luke then in the parallel passages, say something that Matthew has already said in Matthew 18. Remember those passages about the kingdom teachings in Matthew 18? It begins with, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in that passage, Matthew has already said what Mark and Luke say here. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter the kingdom at all. The setting at this time is probably about the time that he has turned from the Judean wilderness across the Jordan and is headed then to Jerusalem. And the very next pericope, the very next passage that we then encounter is his encounter with the rich young ruler, and that's significant in just a moment. And then a little bit after that, his healing of Bartimaeus at Jericho and the friend of Bartimaeus. You know, this passage of Scripture, History of Interpretation, it is a proof text for most liturgical traditions that practice infant baptism. The idea that we are to bring children to Jesus through the act of infant baptism and bring them into the kingdom that way. But baptism is not mentioned in this passage, nor is it a part of the biblical context of the background of this passage. Anywhere do we find baptism mentioned? And you know what I'm going to say next. I believe there's no biblical support, no biblical evidence anywhere for infant baptism. But we need to understand this. There are many churches, many traditions that will look at this passage and say it's a basis then to baptize infants. As we look at this passage, I'd like to make three points. First, we need to look at the disciples' attitudes. We need ourselves to guard against wrongful attitudes about others. And then secondly, the obvious point is, the, as the hymn says, Jesus loves what? The little children. And then finally, I want us to look at what it means by the, this kingdom then belongs to such as these. We need to guard against wrongful attitudes against others. You know, in the first century children, uh, view of, of, of children, we, we all know that pagan society had a very low view of children, especially female children, but they had a very cheap value of young life. Not just females, often males that were not wanted would be left and abandoned in the open to die. Sometimes they were then taken by people that found them and then put into slavery for the rest of their lives. Some commentators say that the view of the Jews of children was very low, and this is why the, the disciples were rather dismissive about the children. I disagree with that strongly. In fact, Jewish culture then and scripturally 
held children to be in high regard. They valued children as gifts from God. They valued children because they represented the future. They were the progeny. They were going to be the continuation of the family line. They valued children also because of their economic and security reasons. That is, someday they would then be taking care of the parents in their old age. Jewish culture and tradition highly valued children. But when we look at the disciples' attitude about these children, it wasn't all that positive. There are a couple of things, I think, that are going on here. And they're instructive about our attitudes about people in general. I think the disciples look at the children as a rather nuisance, a bothersome interruption, like when children cry during the worship service. Do I have to speak a little bit louder sometimes? Yes. (laughs) But you know what? It's good to hear the voice of crying children. Now, when they become very unruly, parents take them out, quieten them down. We understand that. But folks, the disciples look at these children as nuisances. You see, it's the diminutive of child that is used here, which means that probably they were under the age of seven. And Luke, in fact, in his account, says that they were newborn infants, which we don't know who brought them, but my, my, my idea, my thinking here is that they were probably brought by nursing mothers. And women didn't have first standing in Jewish society either. So you've got these women bringing their crying babies. Jesus is trying to teach all of these important teachings about the kingdom of God. And these kids aren't even old enough to begin to recite the Shema. They're not old enough to learn. What are these women bringing these children into our midst? What's it about? Don't interrupt the master. You see, he is about important teachings a profound doctrine. So I think they see them as a nuisance and an interruption. I also think that they they probably think this is beyond their ministerial portfolio. Well, what do I mean by that? You see, Jesus has charged them with some very important tasks. In Matthew, the 10th chapter, when he sent them out, he puts a big responsibility on them. He says, I want you to go out and I want you to heal the sick. I want you to raise the dead. Jesus wasn't the only one who did this, apparently. I want you to cleanse lepers. I want you to cast out demons. The disciples, I think, are saying, we're not here to be babysitters. We're not here to do extended session. Folks, those of you who teach our children in Sunday school, those of you who are not here sometimes because you're with our kids in extended session. That's not just ancillary. That's not something just on the periphery. That's the very first thing that we ask the parents in the congregation to make a commitment to this morning. And that is to do what? Bring the children to Jesus. And that is to do what? Introduce them to the Lord. And we do this from cradle roll on at Gambrel Street Baptist Church. It is an important function of what we do. It's not ancillary to our ministerial portfolios. It's more than just babysitting. You see, I think the disciples have another problem. I think that they've got a bad attitude in general. And folks, sometimes I do this. I talk about, you know, some of the flaws and weaknesses of the disciples. It's reflected in our own attitudes today. They were generally dismissive about anybody that was bothersome. You know, 
Think about the feeding of 5,000. When, when the 5,000 then were hungry and it was time for, for dinner, the disciples said, what? Send them away. Send them to the villages. Send them to the town so that they can buy food for themselves. And Jesus looked at them and he said, you give them something to eat. The Syrophoenician woman just outside the city of Tyre, she came and asked Jesus then to exorcise, to cast a demon out of her little daughter. And she kept clamoring, and she kept shouting, and she kept then besieging the disciples. And they said, Lord, send this woman away. James and John, when they come into Samaria, (laughs) as Jesus has turned and is headed toward Jerusalem, they go through a Samaritan village, and they were not received by the Samaritans. And you know what James and John wanted to do? They said, Lord, shall we pray and ask God to send fire down upon these Samaritans? You see, the disciples could be pretty not only dismissive, but destructive about others. I think they had an inflated view of self. And folks, it wasn't just they. Sometimes we suffer this same weakness. Look at James and John more than once, and their mother interceding with Jesus and vying for important positions in the kingdom. And more than once we have accounts in the synoptics where they were arguing with each other about who was greatest in the kingdom. And that's the background for Matthew 18 and the beginning of the kingdom teachings. You see, Jesus is responding to those attitudes here. He's not just responding and showing his attitude about children. He's dealing with those attitudes of dismissiveness and self-inflated self-importance. How does he do so? The dismissiveness. Well, we can go back to Matthew 18. Remember, that's the passage where he begins the kingdom teachings. And in that passage, there's a respect principle. He said, you should never disregard anyone. You need to be be careful because the world is looking at you and others are looking at you, and you should respect them enough that you should not be a stumbling block to anyone. And then what does he do? To illustrate that, he uses children as an example, you see. He says, you're you're to treat little ones with kindness. In Matthew 18, he says this, see that you do not despise, that you're not dismissive with these little ones. For I say to you that their angels, their angels, these children's angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Children are important. And he uses that as an illustration about their dismissive attitude, about their proud, inflated view of self. The passage Mark 10 is a parallel passage to this. Just before that, in Mark the ninth chapter, he then teaches them the servant principle. And we know what that is. Greatness does not come from lording our authority over others. Greatness comes from what? Serving. If anyone will be first... He shall be last of all and servant of all. And then what does he do? Again, he uses children as his illustration. In Mark, the ninth chapter, what does he say? He took a child, and he set the child before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, You see, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever then receives me does not receive only me, he receives the one who sent me. You see, that's a kingdom principle. The one who sent him. The one who sent the king of the kingdom. When we receive him, we receive the kingdom. And it's represented by the way we treat children. So you see these teachings about children are right at the very heart of the kingdom ethic. 
And Jesus demonstrates those points in the story today. What he's saying is no person is little. No person is unimportant in God's eyes. And Jesus himself demonstrated this. He's already said twice, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be sacrificed. I'll be raised on the third day. You see, Jesus himself did not think his glory and his divinity to be so important that he did not divest himself of it. Philippians tells us this, that though he knew it was not robbery to be equal to God, for this is God himself, he humbled himself and he poured himself out and was obedient. Yes, obedient even to death on the cross. So he has demonstrated that, and he's demonstrating it here in this story about children. A second point is, very obviously, Jesus loves the little children. Okay. Jesus loves the little children, the children, all the children of the world. And you know how we used to sing it, red or yellow, black or white, they're all precious in his sight. Well, folks, our Baptist hymnal was ahead of its day 30 years ago, 35 years ago. We changed it to every color, every race are all covered by his grace. Jesus loves the little children of the world. The point is this, he loves every child. Those two billion children between the age of zip and 14, he loves every one of them He knows when they were born. He knew the name that was going to be given to each of those children and what that name meant, and he knows their destiny. He loves the little children, and he demonstrates this to his disciples. He's already done this in diverse examples. You know, there's a royal official that comes to him then in John, the fourth chapter. Jesus has returned to the site of the first miracle, that is the changing the water to the wine, and he's in Cana. And the royal official says, my son is dying, probably of a fever. Can you heal him? And Jesus does this from 20 miles away. He heals his son in Capernaum. He cares for children. He healed Jairus' daughter. He went intentionally to Jairus, the synagogue ruler, who interestingly enough, the scripture doesn't tell us, but probably was a Pharisee. (laughs) He went to his home and he says, Talitha kum, little girl, rise. And she did. He exercised the Syrophoenician daughter of the demon Though she was a Canaanite and not a Jew, she was not one of the lost sheep of Israel. When she beseeched him again and again, he did not take the advice of his disciples and send her away. He finally granted her request and healed her daughter. The demon-possessed boy after the transfiguration, interestingly, the disciples could not exercise him because of lack of faith, probably lack of their faith, but also the lack of those and the father who had weak faith. After the transfiguration... He healed the demon-possessed boy. Jesus, time and time before this in Matthew 19, has demonstrated that he loves little children. And he confirms it here in both word and deed. He didn't just say it, he acted it out. He gives a double command that is durative here. Leave them alone, imperative. We're dealing with Jesus' imperatives in this series of sermons. There's one of the imperatives. Leave them alone, and it's durative. Continue to leave them alone. Don't bother them. And stop restraining them, and continue to stop restraining them. It's not just let them come now, but let them continue to come. And then he demonstrated this by deed. He blessed them. Well, that's implied in Matthew's account, but Mark says it explicitly. He says, and he took them in his arms and began blessing them. 
laying his hands on them. And it doesn't say that he prayed for them, but I would suggest that's implied in what he did. You see, Jesus loved the little children, and he affirmed their role in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God. After this, two chapters later, after the triumphal entry when he is in the temple, and the children are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, the scribes and the priests, the chief priests, tell Jesus, you got to shut these kids up. They're interrupting the service. What does Jesus say? Now, those children were old enough that they could shout. They, they knew what they were saying. But Matthew in the 21st chapter puts it this way. Jesus then quotes Psalm 2. And he says, have you never read this out of the mouths of infants, out of the mouths of nursing babies? You have prepared gl- glory and praise for yourself. You see, Jesus affirmed. He not only loved children, but he affirmed their role in the kingdom of heaven. Last of all, what does it mean when it says this kingdom belongs to such as these? This needs to be read in the in context of Matthew 18. Remember those teachings about kingdom living. And, and it's introduced by the disciples coming and saying, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You see, there's that dispute about who's greatest. And Jesus called the child to himself, and this is a parallel passage to Mark 9 that we read earlier, and he set the child before them, and then he said this, but he adds a little bit to what Mark said. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, whoever then humbles himself like a child, he is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. A couple of things that we see from this. Number one, the kingdom is for converts. It's not for the proud, it's not for the strong, it's not for the self-sufficient. You see, what he was saying is, you need to respond to my message that I've been preaching all this time in Galilee and on the way to Jerusalem, and that is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what it means when he uses the word convert here. Some people shy away from this word conversion, but it's a very strong verb that that he uses in this passage. What he's saying is repentance isn't enough. Repentance must lead to transformation. Repentance must lead to a turning away from what you were and a conversion, a turning around. Turning around from being proud and self-sufficient like perhaps his disciples had been and becoming truly humble in state of mind. This also argues against infant baptism because it says if you're going to come into the kingdom of God, you must make a decision, a volitional decision. The kingdom, secondly, in this last part, is for humble children. What I don't think Jesus meant was this. Imitate childlike humility. Stop and think about that. I don't think he's saying be, have humility like a child has humility. It's not the beatitude, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. It's a different word. It's not like we preached a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, about Jesus' gentleness and lowliness of mind when we yoke ourselves to him. Though though we are supposed to do that, though we are to have that humble kind of mindset, I don't think that Jesus is talking about be humble like a child. Children are not naturally meek and lowly hearted. Oh, I know when an infant is born, tender, two days old, nursing babe, looks innocent and all. But it doesn't take very long in our maturation process as children before we become rather strong-willed and rebellious and even manipulative. 
Now, let me use about two or three examples here. Who should I use? (laughs) Well, I'll use me, okay? My first living memory was when I was about four years old. Can you think back to your first living memory of what it was? I was standing in front of a movie theater ticket window in Germany with shorts on, buttons and strings in my pocket, my dog Arno, my German shepherd by my side. I had sneaked, okay kids, you're not supposed to do this, okay? I had sneaked out of the house, gone across two or three boulevards with my dog, was standing there wanting to go to the movie. I was pretty, my mother described, I talked to her about this this morning. She said, you were very adventuresome. (laughs) Folks, I was pretty strong-willed. A neighbor recognized me, took me home, and rescued me, you know. Uh, I was always getting into trouble. The the, the Chinese have a phrase called the Belt and Way. They they believe they're going to be able to dominate the the world economic corridor from West Africa across to China over the next hundred years, the Belt and Way. We had a similar thing in my family. It was called the Belt and Way. Now, what I'm going to say now is controversial. But I do believe that today we need to recover some concept of discipline in our families with our children. My dad used the belt. It hung on the doorknob. Now, you may find that offensive, but folks, I saw that belt, and I knew it meant something. I'm going to use an example. I haven't asked permission. Do I have permission to share an example from your life, Beverly? She gets it. Hers wasn't belt and way. Hers was switch. And her enlightened mother then, at some point, decided that she would give Beverly the choice. You're going to be punished discipline. Go out to the garden and get a switch and bring it in. That's what I'm going to use. And she came back in with about a three-inch twig. (laughs) That didn't work. Mom went and found another switch. Third example from our family. Jennifer was about three years old. We were in England, and one day, you've heard Beverly tell this story, I think. She was washing the dishes, beginning to cook dinner. And Jennifer came in there, and she said, Mama, I spanked myself so you don't have to do it. (laughs) To this day, we do not know what she had done, and she's 41 years old. my, My point is this, folks. Children are not naturally humble and meek. Children grow into rebellion. I lived the terrible twos until I was six. Like I said, kids, don't imitate me, okay? Well... That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He didn't mean be humble in character like a child. I think what he meant is this, two things quickly. Number one, childlike simplicity and dependence on God. You see, childlike simplicity, the kingdom of God is not about intellectual knowledge. It's not about worldly acumen. It is about trusting simply the word of God and his plan of redemption. And it defies human wisdom. And Jesus illustrates this in Matthew, the 11th chapter, when he talks about children. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. You have secreted these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you have revealed them to whom? To infants. What's he talking about there? He's talking about a childlike, innocent acceptance through faith, the word of God. I think when he talks about childlike humility, he's talking about total dependence on God. The kingdom of heaven is not about power and dominion and wealth. 
And he illustrates this in the very next story when he encounters then the rich young ruler. Ruler, it's not about your wealth. Get rid of your wealth. That stands between you and the kingdom. It's not about wealth and power and honor. It's about trusting the Father. It's about depending on Him. It's not our worldly goods, you see, upon which we depend. And we, he spoke about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Your Heavenly Father, He knows, children. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things, your food, your clothing, what you drink. But seek first to do what? To please Him. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. You see, Jesus modeled that. Jesus didn't do anything that he didn't see the Father doing, and he came to be obedient to the Father to please him and to do his will. So I think when it says to become childlike, it means those two things. It means that we totally trust God, and we totally trust his word. Let me close with three applications. Number one, our responsibility, I think, from this passage is very clear, to bring the children And it's what we said to the parents, and it's what I've said three times already this morning. I think that means to introduce them to Christ, to teach them about the Word of God and the way of the cross, to lay our hands on them and bless them and pray for them daily, and then to set a godly example. And what should we do? Be like children. That is, totally trusting God and His Word and dependent on the Father. I think a second observation is we're not only responsible to bring the children We have a privilege to be God's children. You see, we never fully grow up in the kingdom of God until we enter it into eternity. We are growing every day as children. And John tells us this in his letter. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God and that we are. We become children of God by a faith commitment to Jesus Christ, John 1 tells us. We know that we're children of God because the Spirit of God bears witness to our spirit that we are His children. And 1 John tells us because we're the children of God, we have been forgiven because we have an advocate that intercedes for us at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And we're not only children of God, we're children of the resurrection because if we believe in Jesus Christ, we have the promise of eternal life. He will raise us from the dead. It is a privilege for each of us to be children of God. I turned 73 this fall, and I think that my primary identity as a human being is a child of God. And then finally, we have an accountability. We have an accountability to bring God's other children to Jesus You see, after he defines the kingdom greatness in Matthew, the 18th chapter, that passage that I quoted a moment ago, then Jesus exhorted them to be a good example and not stumbling blocks to other. And it's not ironic, it's intentional that Matthew then puts in after that what comes from Luke later. Matthew puts it earlier, and that is the seeking of the one lost sheep. To leave the 99 and to seek that one lost sheep And the reason that Jesus gives for that in Matthew is this. You see, it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus has other sheep. He has other little ones that are outside this flock. There are little sheep. There are little ones. They may be 50 years old. They may be 60 years old. They may be 70 years old. They may be your neighbor. 
They may be the stranger that crosses your path this next week. They may be a receptionist in an office. It may be a clerk in a store who's 39 years old. But there are other sheep. There are other little ones. And Jesus loves the little children. So friends, what he does also is he expects us to live up to our responsibility to introduce others to Jesus, to find a way to help to teach them and to embrace them and to love them and pray for them and set a godly example through humility so that his other sheep might come into the kingdom, his other children as well. Would you pray with me? Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life, words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Father, remind us as we go forth from here that our faith leads us to the duty to bring in the other children into your kingdom that are living in a lost and dying world, that are like sheep without a shepherd. May we be your under-shepherds that introduce them to the Lord who is our shepherd. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. What's God's pleasure with you this morning? Is there a commitment, a decision that he's put on your heart to make to him before you leave this sanctuary? It may be where you are. You may make that commitment. It may be prayerful. You may leave and then be responsible and obedient to do it. It may mean that he's calling you to make some kind of faith commitment where you come forward and you share it with me and the church. It may be to join this congregation in the ministry of bringing other little children into the kingdom. It may be some commitment that he's calling you to make in the kingdom of God that you want to make public. Whatever it may be, if it is, or online, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. You can do it right where you are in your living room, in your dining room, wherever you are watching, and you can make that commitment to Jesus Christ by saying, Lord, I know I am a little child. I'm rebellious. I'm sinful. I cannot save myself, and I want to come to you. I want to be brought to you, to the threshold of salvation. I want you to be the Lord of my life. If you want to make that commitment, just pray it right there where you are, and you will enter the kingdom of God today. Let's stand together as we sing.